Hey friends, this is Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we discuss pop culture through the lens of race or gender and sometimes both. I'm your host, Julia Washington. And on today's show, my guest, Maggie Frank Shu is here and we will be talking about the 1980s classic Breakfast Club. Fused by Jewels offers custom artwork and original prints specializing in watercolor, focusing on the human form and different shades of skin. If you're looking for that perfect gift for a birthday or have a special memory you'd like to commemorate, visit Hughes by Jewels on Instagram or find the Etsy shop of the same name. That's Hughes, H-U-E-S by Jewels, J-U-L-S. Breakfast Club was released February 15th, 1985, and was written and directed by John Hughes, starring Emilio Estevez, Molly Ringwald, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, and Anthony Michael Hall. This movie is one that is listed as John Hughes' greatest films. But before we dive into our discussion, let me introduce you to my guest. Maggie Frank Shu is an author and a book coach who helps first-time authors pinpoint their biggest ideas and turn them into published books. She has always been a writer and started her career in journalism, earning a master's degree from the Columbia School of Journalism in New York and working for national magazines like Gourmet, Martha Stewart, and ESPN, the magazine. Maggie's goals in her life and work is to help as many people as possible tell their story. She published her first book, Be About Something, to help people who've always wanted to write a book but don't know where to start. You can get her first chapter, Be About Something, for free on her website. And friends, we're going to link in the show notes for you so you can get to it easily if you're interested. Welcome to the show, Maggie. Wow. Thank you so much, Julia. I'm excited you're here. And as I was getting too. good, as I was getting to know you a little bit better, I realized we have a lot of things in common. Um, uh, British television, mm-hmm. <laughs> love for Denzel Washington. Oh my God. How do you even know that about me? I'm obsessed. That was my first crush. Uh, I love that. We used to yeah. joke and be like, oh, we think Denzel's a long lost family member. Oh God. I mean, who he, anyway. I mean, I, we should do, yeah. And did you see, anyway, I don't know, but did you, do you follow um, Phoebe Robinson? She does like Thirsty Thursdays and yes. this Thursday was Denzel. Yes. I, I watched it. Anyway, I'm a big <laughs> Denzel fan. That's true. Okay. Friends, we're going to do a quick summary of Breakfast Club in, because in case it's been a while since you've seen this movie. Five high school students from different social status are stuck doing Saturday morning detention each suffering their own misunderstood identities, the group battles, the power-hungry principal, all the while opening up and sharing what it's like to be who they are beyond perception. At the time of its release, the Hollywood Reporter had this to say, the Breakfast Club deserves credit for venturing beyond the formulaic, timid patterns of most youth movies. Writer-director John Hughes who has demonstrated a blazing satirical sense of middle America in past work, provides some savvy social and personal insights in the film. So I want to start at the very beginning. What is it about this movie that you love? When you said you wanted to do Breakfast Club, that was, I really wanted to be a guest because it was sort of a formative movie for me. Um, I saw it uh, when I was seven on VHS um, at a friend's house and um, I cannot believe I watched it that young, but it had a huge impact on me. Um, But I would say, so as the things I love about this movie, even now Mm -hmm. and back then as well, even when I was seven, you know, the kind of um, realness around like adults as the enemy. Mm -hmm. So like the principal in the movie is just so out of touch. And even when he, like, he's mean and cruel, and that is definitely the way that, kids saw teachers back then um is just sort of like we have our own lives and then like we have to do what they say but they really don't know us and that all like felt like really um relevant and felt like really true back then and even now like I look at that movie and I don't know that there are a lot of other directors that captured that so well Mm -hmm. 
Um, I also love um, a couple, there's a couple more things. So one is that I love that like his take on class. I know we're gonna talk about how homogenous this movie is in terms of race and even gender, but you know, his take on class, you know, the popular kids in his movies are always rich. And I feel like that's a really great insight, you know, like a lot of other movies, um, the popular kids are cool. Like, mm-hmm. why are they cool? In the, in his movies, they're cool because they have like the right clothes, the right cars, and they have all those things because they have money. And I think that that's real, you know, compared to like a lot of other kind of teen fare. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'll, there's other things too, but like, I think those things are like still really stand out for me. Yeah. It feels like a re- more real take on life. Yeah, he's been credited as being sort of the one who creates this space for teens to be teens and seen as teens, Yeah, you know, on film. And I forgot, so I listened to Rob Lowe's Stories I Only Tell My Friends, which came out in 2011. I did audiobook because he read it himself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I want to listen to Rob Lowe talk to me for two, eight hours. Yes, please. Um and it's really interesting. I forgot about the outsiders and Rob Lowe brings up mm. how the outsiders was really big in sort of breaking down that whole, you know, teens playing teens. They weren't quite teenager, but they, well, he was, but like Emilio and, and, um, Patrick Swayze and Tom Cruise were all kind of in their early twenties, but still mm-hmm. they were, they were young and, you know, not 30 year olds playing teenagers. Right. Like in Greece or something. Yes. <laughs> Or even I watched the birdcage the other day and Calista Flockhart's playing a 19 year old. And in reality, she was like 30 or something. Oh like yeah. That. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. That definitely feels real. And I mean, like, you know, they feel young, but like, it's not just like how they look. It's also um, just their concerns and mm-hmm. like what they're thinking about, like the click, you know, sort of like, I mean, when we get into it, like we'll talk more about, but like, how they're all coming from these different cliques in school or these, this hierarchy where mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald's character is at the top and also Emilio Estevez's character because he's a jock and then everybody else kind of falls underneath that. And that is extremely, like, that is so totally what you're obsessed with when you're a teenager. I mean, I'm sure some people had, you know, alternate experiences of high school, but that was my exact experience was that you were in your group mm-hmm. and you didn't really come outside of your group. And I think actually what I love about this movie is that you do like, it is the other way it's realistic is like, there were like a few like moments in high school where let's say you and like some person from another clique were like stuck together at like something like an event at another school. And it's just somebody you would never talk to, Mm -hmm. but it's the only person, you know, and so you start talking to them and you're like, oh, this person's actually like a whole human being, (laughs) like not just. Miss Popular or not just Miss Jock or whatever. And then when you go back to school, like you never talk to them again, you know, because now you have like, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. like, I feel like that's another, it's, it's their ages and how they look in the movie, but it's also like what they are obsessed with and like the way they think about their lives. It's yeah. very realistic. Yeah. Claire very clearly is at, at that. There's that point in the movie where Claire's very like realistic about it. Like you think we're all going to talk to each other on Monday? Probably not. Right. And then the rest of the group's kind of like, Oh, stop being a, you know, they straight up call her a bitch. Stop being yeah. a bitch about it. And like all these things. And she's like, I'm not wrong. Like Andy, yeah. you know, I'm right. You think you're going to talk to, I forget what Anthony Michael Hall's character's name is. Brian, you think you're going to talk to Brian if he comes up and says, hi, do you know, you're going to say hi, and then he's going to walk away and then you're going to shred him. So you get your street cred back. Right. And that just felt so honest. Yeah. Although then it's all punctured because I think like what the movie says at the very end. And I noticed this because I just watched it the last five minutes, literally the last five minutes is when they couple up Mm -hmm. and and like, so then the idea is that they are going to, they are going to break down this social structure at school because Claire's dating Bender and um Andy's dating Ali Sheedy's character and so I feel like they were they're so honest and they have this great like play like they're in a play like scenes from a play kind of dialogue and then at the end it's sort of like this fantasy I'm not sure how I feel about that (laughs) yeah yeah we can dive into that in a little bit yeah John Hughes is often praised as a writer director who changed the course of the teenage narrative in films as we mentioned 
His movies center around teen themes from a teen perspective. He layers in his own nostalgia for adolescence while considering the modern day teen experience. In Breakfast Club, he brings together five kids from varying social sex who learn and grow from each other. But we never know if come Monday, they remain in their newly discovered state of understanding. The chemistry between the cast is crucial to the success of the characters. There are a few articles circulating that include the fun fact that Nicolas Cage and John Cusack were considered for the roles before hiring Judd Nelson. So I want to talk about performance. This movie essentially creates, it's not the main creation of the Brat Pack, but they become affiliated with the Brat Pack of the 1980s. And as we mentioned a little bit ago, they kind of couple up at the end. But all that to say, do you think the movie still would have worked if there was a Nicolas Cage or a John Cusack had been cast in that role of Bender? Because I can't picture, personally picture John Hughes, or not John Hughes, John Cusack as Bender. He doesn't seem like he has the cruel, cruel vibe that Bender yeah. had. Yeah, no, not at all. I can't, I mean... And if you think about like his other, I mean, I'm a pretty big fan. I haven't watched everything he's ever done, but like his other movies, like even from that time period, he's always playing like, well, say anything. I mean, he's always like very romantic. And I feel like Judd Nelson, and this is what I really remember from when I was seven as well, is like the way that his nose flares, you know, like his nostrils flare Mm -hmm. when he gets really mean and nasty. Like, you know, I just, Mm -hmm. I think like Nicolas Cage probably would have had a better chance but also I think, and I, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about Nicolas Cage? I, you know, he's hit or miss for me. Like I loved him yeah. in Gone in 60 Seconds. <laughs> There's like a handful of movies that I love him in. And I always forget he's part of the Coppola family, but he just has this sort of Keanu vibe to me. Mm. But like if Keanu was sinister. Well, what was the movie where he played a valley girl? Yeah, oh, that is very, he's very, uh, you know like Bill and Ted kind of yeah uh, I mean if they're from different eras but yeah I don't know I'm not like a, I think like maybe he seems like off because he does tend to like dominate in mm-hmm. some of the movies that he's in and be like the center and uh and it, this works better I think because all of them although Bender's like I feel like Bender and Claire kind of compete for being the main character in yeah. the movie and I think but I think like Judd Nelson does have a way of like you know being in the ensemble and not taking over yeah yeah he and he definitely has a lot of some of the crucial scenes too Mm -hmm. where and I'm I was watching very closely this time and I still can't remember after they're wandering the halls I'm still looking at this going why did they leave the library again altogether? I just can't, for whatever reason, keep that in my head when they Um, run when they almost get caught you mean mm -hmm. Because they go to the to Bender's locker and he gets his weed. Oh, that's right. Because he shoves it in um, Anthony Michael Hall's pants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We could talk about favorite character now, actually, because for all mm. of Bender's issues that we'll get into in a little bit, because he really is, he really, this time around, made me a little bit more uncomfortable than in previous mm-hmm. times I've watched it. Um, they all have a really... Like they all had to be who they are in order for this to work in my mind. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have, if Bender was dialed back in any way, shape or form, I don't know mm-hmm. if it would have worked, but it's still, he feels icky sometimes. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm like complicated. He is icky. I think like um, what I was going to say a couple things about, like in terms of, I don't know if I have a favorite character, actually. I feel like what I noticed in this viewing, the like watching it a couple of days ago is that the bonding that happens between them is really well done. Like, yes. it's not like, oh, like in one scene, it's like every scene, like a little more kind mm-hmm. of like even, cause it's really after lunch that they start talking and really getting to know each other. But like, even like there's a part where they early on where they all fall asleep. And then what's the principal's name? I forget his name. His first name's Dick. I know that, but yeah, um, where he comes in and they've already, there's also like all the things that kind of have to happen. So like Bender, um the library door is open at first mm-hmm. but then Bender breaks the door so that it has to stay shut and um so that kind of keeps that gets them a little bit more bonded because they don't tattletale on Bender like they don't t- know you know they kind of this is another thing that's so realistic about high school life is like they're all fighting 
And then when the adult comes in, they all close ranks and mm-hmm. they're like all, you know, none of them are going to tell the adult what happened. And then there's another scene early on where um, they're all they're all asleep because they're so bored, which is another thing, like not having any electronics or any kind of, you know, nothing is on them really besides like paper. Yeah. And they don't even read any books in the library or they kind of look at magazines sometimes, but um, they get so bored and they fall asleep. And then the principal comes in and he's like, who has to use the lavatory? And they all raise their hands without opening their eyes, you know? Yeah. And like, that just cracked me up so much. It's just like little things that make them like more and more like together against the world. And mm-hmm. I really love that. I feel like, yeah, I don't, if I had to pick a favorite character, I would say Andy, actually. Yeah. I have always, I mean, I had a big crush on him, but I also, I also think like Emilio Estevez's performance is really undersung because like he has to be like, so like such a straight arrow. And then like, you know, I mean, Judd Nelson's got like all this sort of scenery chewing stuff to do. And then the the geek is like geeky Mm -hmm. and he kind of has to like hold this very like boring middle ground and I feel like he's actually pretty interesting and does a good job so yeah yeah there's um a couple of scenes that kind of drive me crazy like I like I'm with you on the whole Andy thing like I definitely had a crush on Emilio Estevez (laughs) as Andy it's just like you're cute sporto um there there's the idea that you can't do anything during detention like you're not allowed to study you're not allowed to do like anything and that's so mind-blowing to me and I think that is this like this is like a thing in the 80s I can't remember the 90s sometimes I can't remember some details about the 90s but I remember when I got detention we were allowed to do (laughs) oh I know I mean actually like this principle he is so sadistic and that's another thing I really like about this movie is that like I mean he is just like Bender sometimes you feel sympathy for never for the principle I mean he is just so like he's just doesn't think of kids as people. He's always yelling at them on your feet, you know? And like, you know, he's so mean. And, And you know, when, what, yeah. When he locks Bender in the closet, I feel like that turns to abuse. Yeah. And like, I mean, he's abusive several times, but um, the whole thing, and like they, the first scene, they get to school at seven, I think. Mm -hmm. So the detention is like seven to four. That's crazy. Like nine hours, you're going to have detention for people. And like, Claire cut class that I mean maybe she cut several times and that's why they're fine but this is like a really harsh punishment so I feel and, like yeah and it doesn't seem like a harsh enough punishment for um mm. Anthony Michael Hall's character because he brings a weapon to school yes <laughs> or like, really for for Andy either I mean when you yeah. find out finally what Andy did he, yeah. he basically assaulted I mean he could have been like criminally charged mm-hmm. for what he did so um, it's very, it's such a strange, I mean, it makes, and then like, I mean, there's a lot of plot holes in this movie. You can't think too hard. Like in the whole second half of the movie, like the principal never comes back and it's because he's down in the basement talking to the janitor, but mm-hmm. like, it's a little bit thin of an idea that like, they're all going to smoke pot together, like that much pot yeah, for that long and not get caught. Right. Principal Vernon. Yeah. Vernon. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see him with the janitor. I forget the janitor's name too, but oh. he, you know, he knows, uh, Brian and, they kind of have, and that that's never ever. I don't think that's he's ever a explained. scene stealer. I love the jazz. Yeah. I didn't remember him. Yeah, he's only got like two scenes, and they're very memorable. Yeah, definitely. Modesto Reads is a community on Instagram highlighting what people in the city of Modesto, California, are reading. If you want book recommendations, or if you live in the city of Modesto, follow Modesto Reads and use the hashtag Modesto Reads. Since its release, the world has changed a lot. Serious criticism of John Hughes' work has been circulating since at least 2015, maybe even sooner, but it's become more publicly in the last handful of years. And Molly Ringwald herself has written about her time and experience during this era. In Ringwald's now famous essay in The New Yorker, she specifically addresses the scene in which Bender is under the table. He is hiding from the principal. Claire is because at this point he's been sent in exile and he snuck back. That's why he's hiding under the table for our friends at home who may not remember why. There's a shot of this view under the table, which then cuts to Claire appearing to kick Bender while he's still hiding. Ringwald writes this. What's more, as I can see now, Bender sexually harasses Claire throughout the film. When he's not sexualizing her, he takes out his rage on her with vicious contempt, calling her pathetic, mocking her as queenie. It's rejection that inspires his vitriol. 
Claire acts dismissively toward him, and in his pivotal scene near the end, she predicts that at school on Monday morning, even though the group has bonded, things will return, we mentioned this earlier, return socially to the status quo. Just bury your head in the sand and wait for your fucking prom, Bender yells. He never apologizes for any of it, but nevertheless, he gets the girl in the end which I actually kind of forgot about a little bit, but we'll dive into that right now. In the article, Ringwald shares that an older actress is hired for the scene, but she and her mother are still embarrassed by it. So I want to talk about that scene a little bit and Bender overall towards Claire, because it's a lot. So how do you think the representation of this relationship impacted you as a young person and then now as an adult? Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, the first especially in the beginning. I mean, it's all, it's bad all throughout, but I was watching this with my husband and he was like, this movie has not aged well. Like he was really offended. Um, and I was too, but I was like going to watch the whole thing. I mean, I think we would have turned it off like, or he would have turned it off the one thing. And I remember not understanding. So, and I don't know if I were, I've seen this movie several times, but I just have a really strong memory of the first time I watched it when I was seven in my neighbor's, um, bedroom on her little VHS. And, um, you know, I remember when he was saying, like, torturing her about whether she was a virgin, right? Yes. And this comes up twice in the movie, yeah. where they're all, like, kind of really, really, it's so inappropriate. Like, mm-hmm. they're, you know, if kind of asking, I mean, basically, like, accusing her of being a slut and a prude at the same time. Right. And, like, there's no other possibility, like, there's no other possible way for her to be. And she, it just never occurs to her to be, like, you know, to like kind of just not, t- you know, not take it, you know, I mean, she sort of seems like she buys into it all. So, but I mean, I'm not blaming her. Yeah. I right. would say, yeah. And, and also like, okay. So back to him, I mean, he's really unforgivable. I think like the only, I think it's Judd Nelson's performance that kind of saves it. Like, because there's like a part where um, Bender's making fun of Brian and like, is like, you know, protect, like kind of like doing like his impression of, Brian's house where like, Mm -hmm. Hey dad, Hey son, and Mm -hmm. let's go fishing and stuff. And then he does his impression of his own house, which is like his dad beating him up. And then he shows everyone that he has a cigarette burn on his arm. And then he, when he runs, like he gets really mad and then he like leaves the group and goes and sits on the stairs and he looks really, I mean, he looks like a kid there. Like he looks Mm -hmm. really pained and like, he doesn't understand what's going on. And so I kind of felt like, although I think that excuses nothing about his behavior, like I felt that the character was written a little bit um, like, you know, he's bad, he is vicious, but he's like written in a way where you can empathize with him a little Mm -hmm. bit Mm -hmm. instead of like what I said about Vernon, who's just like always cruel, always sadistic. And there's really nothing redeeming about him, you know? Yeah. I had a hard time with Bender because the whole time he's just so, he's just antagonizing Claire and it's just so awkward and it's so uncomfortable and it just Mm -hmm. makes me like cringe and just feel for her. And then, you know, in, well, I didn't, the whole scene with him under the bench really bothered me. I thought, how that's Mm -hmm. interesting. I'm surprised that made it, um, into you know that sort of scenario made it into the movie just generally when you think about the 80s but then a lot of stuff that was like Porky's and all these other movies that came out well that's what yeah and when I read Molly Molly Ringwald's article too it's like she does um in that New Yorker article she does contextualize like he wrote for National Lampoon Mm -hmm. I mean and I remember those movies from that time as well like all like the National Lampoon movies like the vacation movies there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of weird stuff with like buxom 16 year olds and there's I mean there's so many there's um Porky's is like that there's Revenge of the Nerds is like that yeah there's Fletch like anything Chevy Chase was in yeah is pretty much like gross and weird yeah Caddyshack um so but yeah go ahead yeah and I have more but go ahead your it's your turn go ahead no it's okay but it just so I like have this complicated relationship because like you say Judd Nelson's performance is so good so on the one Mm. hand you're just like this is a terrible human and I feel like you're representative of all of this sort of not to completely generalize, but, you know, you can kind of draw a line with some of the terrible people that, you know, who are not terrible people, some of the people that we've seen come to existence who behave in such horrific ways. And then 
you can kind of see similarities between them and Bender and then that mm-hmm. empathetic tone of like, you know, he does come from a really bad house and he does have literally nobody is rooting for him. They mm-hmm. literally do not care if he survives. Like the principal yeah. clearly states like you're going to end up in jail. It's fine. Nobody cares. And even early on, Andy says like, you're nothing. Nobody cares about you. So he's mm. constantly getting that affirmation that he doesn't matter, Yeah. but also he channels it in a way where he just takes it in and then gives it right back out. And he's zeroed in on Claire for this particular movie. And I just mm. had a really hard time with that because I wanted somebody, I just wanted him to be like, I want an adult to come to him and say like, Hey man, you're not trash. You could potentially have a future if you like wanted to, you're not trash. (laughs) And that Mm. just isn't going to happen for him. That just didn't happen for him. And then in the end, when Claire does come to him after him treating like garbage the whole time yeah, and they end up like having that moment in the closet where I was just like, you know, 20 years ago, I was like, Oh, so sweet now I'm like girl come on do we need to do this like this well yeah this isn't Mm -hmm. I don't like this anymore and then um he even pulls the card of like wouldn't it be great to drive your parents crazy to bring me home right (laughs) like yes and no I'm conflicted yeah yeah I mean I think that um and she says this in the article too and I totally felt this where she said like in real life Molly Ringwald like it was, it had only been like 10 years ago. Like, so when she was well into her thirties where she stopped thinking that bad boys were more interesting than nice men, you know, mm-hmm. she said something like that. And that's definitely resonated with me. Like I have like, I've noticed, I mean, I noticed that pattern in my early dating life until I got therapy, but I think like a lot of, I mean, it wasn't because of this movie. Like there's right. so much in the air about like, you know, men and per- pursuit and like how men show you that they like you or mm-hmm. like, you know, are interested in you. And like, you know, also this is touched on in the movie where it's like, sh- he talks about her using sex as a weapon. And mm-hmm. I feel like for me, it was kind of gross because I know in real life, like he was 25 and she was 16 or 15. Mm-hmm. So that's really gross. But he had this like conversation or like, you know, he's berating her and telling her that she uses it to get respect or to, you know, and, um, Yeah, I think that there's no question that if you don't, you know, if I was watching this as a teen, I wouldn't have enough of a critical eye Mm -hmm. to where, or like, I think you need, like teens need to watch this movie with adults that, I mean, no teens are going to want to watch any movies with adults, but I think, (laughs) you know, I don't know that the other thing I wanted to bring up was um, that, and it's sort of like, but you know what one thing that kind of came to mind was like we see all this stuff of Molly Ringwald kind of like wringing her hands and thinking like what what have I contributed to the culture and so I googled and I wanted to see like if Judd Nelson had ever said how he felt about this role now and he I found the first result I found I didn't like look that hard but he had done an interview in 2019 with like the local newspaper in Wilmington, North Carolina. So like, not like, you know, the New Yorker, but um, he, cause he was going to do a play there. Anyway, they asked him about it and he was like, basically like, it was horrible response. Like he used his male privilege where he was just kind of like, well, I don't see what Molly sees and it's classic and you can't really hold an old movie to like modern standards. And that was what he said. And I don't agree with Molly, he said. And like, I kind of, that really made me so disappointed because 2019 is well after me too. Yeah. And like, I feel like so many people in positions of privilege do this, like white people do this all the time also, where it's like black people or people of color are like, you know, bring something up. And then a white person's like, well, I don't, I don't understand why, you know, I don't get Mm -hmm. it. Like that doesn't offend me. And it's like, okay, well, (laughs) You know, I, and yeah. I kind of heard the same thing in his response yeah. where it was like, oh, well, you know, that doesn't bother me and I'm proud of it. And it's like, okay, well, but you're the man, you're like, I guess it's like your privilege, you yeah. know, leaning on your privilege to do that and not yeah. to really interrogate it at all. That's, and it's interesting too, because then again, the burden is on Molly Ringwald mm-hmm. to justify it and to clarify yep. it and to be in it. And he's not like, and you, that's a, that's an, I love that you went down that. Um, road because now I'm thinking, gosh, I don't know if anyone other than Molly Ringwald has spoken about their time working I, with John Hughes. I thought it was 
was weird in the New Yorker that she didn't interview the other cast members. Like, mm-hmm. did they, did she ask them and they said no, or like they just didn't, because she interviewed, it was anyway. So, but yeah, I felt like if any, I mean, I don't think Judd Nelson himself is like, needs to be held accountable. Right. I mean, it's, he's playing a character not held accountable as, as if it was real life, but sure. kind of like she's holding herself accountable, like being like, what have I contributed to the culture by right. participating in this? And then like no one else in the movie feels like they need to say anything. I don't know. That was yeah. weird to me. Yeah, I agree. And you bring up a really good point there because again, we're just putting that burden on this woman who is a mm-hmm. teenager who is trying to get a, you know, who is in acting to have the whole sole responsibility of explaining away, not explaining away, but you know, the burden of John Hughes canon, <laughs> which isn't fair. And granted, you know, he was, she's been known, she's been called his muse and, you know, mm-hmm. he want, he's always, he always wanted her to for the breakfast club. And then they kind of used her in 16 candles as sort of a te- like a test run, if you will. And yeah, all of these things, but still, you know, it's, you have, it's, there's so many characters that exist that are like Bender mm-hmm. that there has to be, you know, you have to, as an actor, and I've talked about this on the show in other episodes, like I was cast as, and for people who are new to the show, I'm biracial. I have a black parent and a white parent, well, Italian, but whatever. Um, and so when I was doing theater, I got cast as a the mean white lady who yelled at Rosa Parks on the bus and it Mm. messed with my head. And it was just really, really hard to continue to play that role. Granted, we didn't have a long run of the show. We only did three shows and then we did a school tour, but rehearsal time, all of it. Mm. So now like I feel whenever anybody brings it up and, you know, I'm publicly out and proud as a biracial woman, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. When people bring it up, you know, it's a conversation I'm willing to engage them with, you know, engage in with them. It was just like, it. this is how it affected me playing that role. So let's, you know, if it affected you, let's talk about it. And I'm like nobody in comparison to Judd Nelson. So I find it interesting when actors who play sort of, you know, these problematic characters are unwilling to discuss it. Yeah. Even, even Lakeith Stanfield, who played the guy in um, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a great film. Oh, yeah. He even talked about how hard it was to play the, that character yeah. um, and just how much, it, how difficult it was at the end of shooting. And, and he really got into a deep, dark place. So, so it's hard for me. Like, I think that you have, I don't know, you almost have to examine your participation in what's happening, especially when it's a pop culture thing, because, and I don't know if they didn't realize that breakfast club would be huge and John Hughes would have the impact in pop culture in the way that it, mm. he has at the time. But I think taking a little responsibility in that is really important because you've just influenced literally three generations. Yeah. <laughs> but he absolutely doesn't have to. I mean, that's male privilege. It's white male privilege. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to, I mean, and he's not, I mean, he sort of says like, he said something, you should look it up, but he said something like, we all live in the shadow of John Hughes, almost like it was really not up to me or kind of, but like, yeah, I feel like, you know, he doesn't have to, he didn't, doesn't feel like he has to. He's like, that was then. And yeah, I mean, you should look at the quote because then he says like, you know, were the framers of the constitution supposed to know? And it's like, yeah, kind of, they weren't (sighs) supposed to know that they're on stolen land. And I mean, like, that's kind of like like a really oversimplistic write-off and a weird comparison to make you know, that's kind of what he said, just nothing. But I feel like white men and, you know, men get, and anyone in a position of privilege gets away with stuff like that all the time. Yeah. Um, And I also wanted, there was something else I wanted to say about, well, two other things. One was the other thing that endears him, because we're making him sound like, I just want to point out that like, he is really, um, like you do feel kind of empathy with him mm-hmm. because like when they, when they sneak out of the library to go get his weed and they're about to get caught by Vernon and what does he do? He tells them you all go that way. And I'm going to kind of, he lures Vernon away and mm-hmm. he's the only one that gets in trouble. Mm-hmm. And he does that for them. And like, I feel like, you know, that's the moment where you're like, Oh, this guy is like, I don't, I don't have like a good sense of, like, why does he do that for them? Right. Like they could have all gotten in trouble. He, he protects them all. And then Vernon gets so mad at him because he runs to the gym and he's like shooting hoops and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he gets, he locks him in the closet 
which is so abusive. Vernon's worse. I think that helps with like having empathy for Bender. Yeah. And then he says all these things and he says, you know, I'm going to find you in five years and I'm going to beat the shit out of you. I mean, he actually, the principal actually says that to him and the look on his face again, I feel like his performance is so good. Cause like the look on his face, he turns immediately into like, he really looks 15. He really looks scared. He really looks like a child. He really looks like he's being abused and it's really painful to watch. So mm-hmm. I think like looking at his performance as a commentary about like, you know, this cliche, like hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. like that he is always being abused what you said earlier. I feel like then you can have more, you just have like, I don't know, you can't just be like, fuck that guy and right. write him off completely. It's all the principal. That's what the principals did. That's what the teachers did. That's what everybody yeah. else did. And he showed you that he is sort of savable, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I'd like to think that his relationship with um, Claire does go beyond Saturday and he does get a little redemption and does better with his life. <laughs> I don't think so. But yeah. I mean, the other, oh, and one other thing I wanted to say, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this might be too much, but I was I was Googling or I was looking at Emilio Estevez's IMDb page because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, he was in Young Guns. I forgot how like popular he was in the 80s. And um, he was in this other movie that I saw when I was like 10, which was also inappropriate. Um, and it, I saw it on video and it was called Stakeout. And it was he, him and Richard Dreyfuss were the stars. And um, have you ever seen it? Have you heard no. of it? Stakeout? So I only saw and it I love then, Richard so I Dreyfus. I have a very sketchy, well, you don't want to, this movie is like the definition of not aging well. So the premise of this movie is that they're two cops, they're partners, Richard Dreyfus and Emilio Estevez, and they are, there's a really bad criminal who's on the lam or something, and they stake out the criminal girl, the criminal's girlfriend's apartment. And they can kind of see through her blinds because they're like in an abandoned building across the street. And so they're basically stalking this woman without her knowledge as police officers, which is like the thin, you know, like Mm -hmm. premise of like why they're allowed to do this, but they stalk her and they like see her undressed and they see her like in, you know, I mean, she has her windows open. So, you know, everybody, everyone can look in, but anyway, but that whole idea of that movie now is so horrifying. Like they sexualize her and one of them ends up dating her without telling her that they're also staking her out. I don't remember what happens, but I do remember, like, I just think like now for that to be the premise of a major motion picture, even if it was probably like critically panned or whatever, Mm -hmm. but like for that movie to even get made, like there was definitely different mores back then, but you know, I, you know, for what it's worth. Yeah. Rob Lowe talks a lot about that in his book. Um, Mm. It was actually really, a really interesting read because he does kind of, you got the sense because he and Emilio and all these guys are all hanging out in Malibu together mm-hmm. living their best life in the 80s <laughs> um and you really get the sense from the book that he was um a little reserved in some of his storytelling like there's more to uh-huh. the story than what he's sharing so now I'm just like please have some please have written the true stories that we will get at some point in life, like when everyone's dead or something, because I'm mm. dying to know. Cause when he talks about St. Almost fire, which mm. came out the same year. And mm. that always blows my mind because Ali Sheedy is in it as well, but they're playing young adults. Yeah. And then, you know, six months earlier, whenever the release was, they were in high school. So whatever uh-huh. you want to yeah. there, but, um, Where's I going with this? Oh, like Rob Lowe was talking about how everyone sort of like coupled up, but he was very polite in the way that he talked about people sort of bonding together. And he made it, he did make it sound like it really was innocent, but it was sort of implied that it wasn't. Okay. So now I'm just like, what's the real story? Can we get an E Hollywood behind the movie for Breakfast Club, please? Or um, St. Elmo's Fire, please. Mm. We have talked about how we were both probably a little too young to watch this movie at the time when we saw it. Last night when I was sitting down to watch it, I said to my son, oh, have, you want to watch this with me? Have you seen it before? Because, you know, he's a, in high school now. He's a senior. And I'm thinking we can have actual conversations about things. And I'm like, this is probably bad. And we can really dissect those things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, his mom, I've already seen it. I'm like, what are you talking about? You've already seen it. He's like, yeah, I think a couple of times. The first time was with you. What do you mean the first time you saw this movie was with me? And he's like, yeah, I remember it's so-and-so's house. You guys put it on. And I was like, oh my. 
this is pre-pandemic. So I'm hoping he was a freshman in high school when we, when this happened, because I right. don't recall. And the friend's mom was also at the house and we were like, let's have a movie night. Like let's make dinner and have a movie night. Cause we had all been hanging out during the day extended into the night. The only rated R movie this woman watches is the breakfast club. Mm. And I have to also add, she is very deeply rooted in her religion. She is very much involved in her church. She does not normally watch rated R movies. And however long ago it was, I wasn't thinking it didn't click. Right. And then now I'm watching this movie. And I'm like, I can't believe that this is the movie that she's like, this is the only rated R movie I watch. I love this. Huh, movie so that's much. weird. It's so funny to me because even, like I said, you, so he, it's 20, whatever. So if he was a freshman, I was probably 2019. So, you uh-huh. know, we're starting to make those conversations, get those conversations maybe it was the fall of 2018, but the point is, is, you know, we were just starting to have those conversations about John Hughes and his canon and mm. the problems with it and et cetera. And yeah. here I am last night thinking my son's never seen this movie before, but yet he reminded me of this experience that I probably shouldn't let him have. So you don't remember like talking to him about, I mean, first of all, with, before I ask that, like this woman has pretty good taste, honestly, because I feel like, yeah, I feel like I should hate this movie more, but I think it's because the dialogue is really good. The dialogue of this movie is, and the performances, it's good, man. It's just yeah. fun. It's interesting. It's not like, it's not like the other movies either. I mean, I, it's not like Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not like Sweet um, 16 Candles, but I mean, Pretty in Pink. Anyway, they all have their, their things, but the dialogue, it's so like, I love plays. I, there, I love plays with four people. There's a few like, you know, stage plays that are four people and they're all kind of, you know, like uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or something yeah. like that. It's got like that same, well, there's five people in this, but it's, it's got still, that same, got same kind vibe. of like, you know, people bouncing off of each other and like really getting energy from each other. And I feel like that's, that's why it's hard to just throw this away, even mm-hmm. though there's so many problems with it. There's so many problems, but my question is going to be, do you don't remember like, you sat in there, watched them. Like they say so many bad things, sex things, so many bad, bad sex things. Mm-hmm. Like, and then that whole scene with her panties, mm-hmm. like what, you know, one of the things I was thinking too, sorry, I'm really going off. But That's okay. I love it. Is they have the scene where Bender's under the table and there's this full on crotch shot and it's mm-hmm. supposed to be Molly Ringwald's, you know, ass and, mm-hmm. you know, vulva in underwear, like covered yeah. in underwear, but still right there, like full screen. And like, you know, she says in the New Yorker article that they had to hire someone over 18 to do that. But like, didn't anyone think about the fact that like, it was illegal for them to actually show what they were trying to show? Like, it would have if they had put her actual crotch on the screen, yeah. that would have been illegal. Yeah. Like, didn't anyone think about how like, maybe this was like, inappropriate? I don't know. Yeah. To me, yeah, they and I, but I also think they're trying to like, push like, if you look at teen stuff, like I was thinking about Euphoria, which I don't yeah. watch, um, but my, but I do feel like, you know, they're in Euphoria, like it sounds like the teen characters are like really like provocative. And I think they were trying to be provocative. You know, I don't, I don't think they necessarily thought all teens acted like this. I yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> you don't remember seeing it with him. So you don't remember like discussing what was so- said. After he brought it up, then the memory came back of us being in the apartment and sitting around the room, but I don't remember having a conversation after the fact. And that's not, that's not my style. So we must have, I just don't recall it because apparently I'm not good at remembering things. Um, But it was that moment of like, gosh, I wish that I had been more. I think at the time I was more about the bonding moment between the four of us because Mm. we'd all known each other. Like I had known these people since before my child was born. We didn't really have a lot of opportunity to like create memories, like the four of us together. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, you know, me and the friend and me and her mom or me and my kid, there wasn't really a whole lot of chances for us to be like a cohesive quad, um, doing things and creating memories together. So I think I was caught up in the moment of like, we're making pizza. We're going to have P- um, movie night and do this like very family oriented thing. The four right. of us. And well, not- I'm not accusing you of anything. No, but no, I'm no, just it's like, okay. Now that I'm watching, because like when I watched it the other night, I was like, geez, I mean, it sh- was shocking. Some yeah. of it was shocking to me still. Yeah. And uh, as a 41 year old woman. So I yeah. just felt like who first encountered this movie when I was seven. So I just felt yeah. like, wow. Yeah. It's, it's not like, 
it's been so many years since it was made and it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like old fashioned. That's for yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. John Hughes has that about his style too, though. Like, even though there's like, like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to understand locker room showers in high school movies. Cause that's not part of my high school experience, <laughs> yeah. but you know, outside of those weird things for the most part, he kind he totally, I think nails it on the head. And I think that context mm. of, you know, Molly Ringwald writing that article brought context back to a generation or brought context to a generation who didn't exist at the time to remind them we didn't have stuff like this when we were yeah. your age like yeah. you have it now we did not have it then and yeah. I think that's so important because when you kind of go back to that so I struggle with the idea of just looking at everything through a modern lens and that's it cut and dry black and yeah. white there's no wiggle room because you have like, there's a reason why these things started existing. There's a reason why, you know, they were innovative at the time. I cannot tell you how many articles that were printed at the time, critic reviews that would praise Hughes and say, this is, this is it. Like he nailed getting that high school nuances, the teen angst, all of it. He nailed it. And there really wasn't a whole lot to compare it to. Now, when you pull up, articles of teen movies or whatever there's tons of stuff to reference to yeah and whether or not it's good or bad or indifferent and you know we forget 30 something years ago that well I guess it's more than 30 something years ago now it was probably closer to 40 years ago not yeah almost as close but almost it didn't happen then and yeah and it's easy for my son's generation to not know that because are you know are there what are their parents do tr- doing trying to survive? They don't have time to like be obsessed with entertainment mm-hmm, <laughs> or know the mm-hmm. history of entertainment or be in touch with those things anymore. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why I was like, when we pull movie reviews, we have to pull from the era. So that way we bring that context back because yeah. it's easy to get sucked in. Like the whole time I'm watching it last night, I'm like, this feels icky, but the payoff of the end of the film still feels good, right? Yeah. Like you still get, there's still the payoff. There's still all of the things that you want in a movie that feels good. Minus Bender having his issues, you know, minus, um, um, well, the principal is the obvious, you know, um, villain, but still, you know, with all of its flaws, you still have the payoff and you still walk away kind of feeling like I enjoyed that movie. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't agree with like, I don't know. I think that the way that the movie tied up is really probably one of the things that makes it the most like the, well, a lot of it didn't age well, we're saying, but like, I think would be more interesting, like is like the least nuanced of the mm-hmm. whole movie. Right. And it's literally, cause I paused to see like how many more minutes are left from the moment where, you know, uh, Molly Ringwald like gives Ali Sheedy a makeover and she comes out, you know, and like all that. And it is five minutes of a like one hour, 40 minute movie. So yeah. it's like, you know, I feel like the, everything else that happens in that movie is a lot more um, interesting than what happens in the last five minutes, which is definitely when I was a kid, not the way I felt. Like it made total sense to me that they got together. <laughs> and now yeah. like it doesn't really. I mean, I feel actually I feel Emilio Estevez and Ali Sheedy getting together is a little bit more OK with me only because especially in this viewing and maybe because I'm trying, I'm just giving Emilio Estevez too much credit, but there is like many moments in the movie. It's not just when she gets the makeover, right? Like throughout the movie, he seems really like, you know, plugged into her, Mm -hmm. like paying attention to Ali Sheedy, what she's doing. He seems amused by her. He seems interested in her. He smiles at her a lot. And like, you get the feeling like he's, he is paying attention to her. Yeah. And then like when she like pulls her hair back and has like a different outfit, outfit somehow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, she was wearing it under on. her black sweater. Okay. Yeah. And I, that's and, what know, I choose to believe. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I think, I mean, like I, I felt that more, I felt like that was more okay with me, but maybe I'm just giving him, I feel like, anyway, if we talk about him for a second, like, you know, probably my favorite scene in the movie is actually when he admits what he did to get the detention which is like torture this poor nerd but like when he talks about and of course it's all the dialogue that Hughes wrote but like when he talks about how he's never he's not interested in bullying kids but they're in the locker room and like he you know he's recall like he 
was in the locker room thinking about how his dad would be basically proud of him if he Mm -hmm. bullied this kid or like, you know, how he feels like he's falling short of like his dad's shenanigans when his dad was in high school. And all of a sudden he's like, he's violently attacking this other Mm -hmm. kid. And I feel like that is really, um, that felt really deep. And like, that, it's like, yeah, why are people cruel, cruel to other yeah. people? Because it's not just kids who are cruel, like all throughout adulthood, people are cruel. And like, why, you know, it's not necessarily because they're just bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's how I feel about that. Sorry. I don't know how I got on that tangent. <laughs> that's okay. I appreciate it. Cause I forgot how it felt very much that he was very sincere in his regret and behaving that yeah. way. And I just really loved that because you know, Brian sitting over there, like that was you like shocked yeah. that like, scared, uh-huh. kind of like, whoa, kind of scared of him now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just, and you don't really get to see that, um, vulnerability a lot in men either. We don't yeah. really see that as much. So. Hey friends, did you know that I have spoken about representation in media and literature other than just on the podcast? I've been booked to speak at company meetings, panel discussions, voiceovers for commercials and video narratives, and to moderate discussion panels. To learn more about how you can book me for an event, just shoot me an email, popculturemakesmejealous at gmail.com. Use speaking engagement as the subject line. Looking forward to working with you. In a 2021 interview with Vogue magazine, Molly Ringwald once again revisits her experience with the three most important films of her career, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. When asked if her relationship has changed over time, she replied, quote, I recognize that those films are so meaningful for generations for generations of people. I feel very protective of them, but at the same time, I also have a complicated feelings towards them. I definitely feel like they, they're flawed and there are things I don't like about them. The lack of diversity in particular always bothers me. I'm more conflicted about the Breakfast Club and 16 Candles than Pretty in Pink, which I feel is actually the least problematic of the three. But I would say overall that I feel very loving and nostalgic towards the films I made with John. They occupy an important part of my life, end quote. And we, I feel like we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but do you think this movie would hold up today if it were released now? What do you think? <laughs> I have I have trouble with this question. Like if it were released as is, there are a lot of movies still with all white casts. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, what do you think? I think I think they'd have to I think the concept could still exist. Um you know, that, that, that idea of detention all day. I, again, by the time I was in high school in the late nineties, early two thousands, you could do your homework in detention. It wasn't like a, you have to sit there and think about it. Cause that happens in freaks and geeks too, <laughs> yeah. where you're yeah. not allowed to do anything in detention. It's so foreign to me. Um, but I definitely think if they tried to release a movie based in Chicago or the Chicago region, people would pitch a fit about lack of diversity and rightfully so. Yeah. And I don't know if you've listened to it, but in a a few episodes ago, my friend and I did a um, conversation about Moxie and they placed it in the Pacific Northwest. And if you look at ratios or statistics, the cast of Moxie was more diverse in, in, in percentage in that ratio percentage Mm -hmm. than all of the Pacific Northwest in general. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it was like that moment of like, okay, listen, we want representation, but also no, (laughs) like you did this weird, this feels awkward. Um, I would be interested to see if somebody could update it, not necessarily call it the breakfast club and not do the garbage that they did to she's all that by making he's all that, but, you know, keeping in line, (laughs) (laughs) I regret watching that movie so bad. Like I want that time back. Um, But just, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see how it look one in a 2020, not just through a 2020 lens, but with like the technology that we have now, Mm -hmm. because I think what makes this movie work so well is that you can't be on you. There was no cell phones. Yeah. You know, they didn't have like the computer. And it's like, they're not. Yeah. Now, like you know, even if they took their cell phones away during detention, like there would still be, you know, they would be missing it or so they, they didn't have like the concept of like being connected in that way, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed as an old person. But um, the other, like, I think what you'd have to do now too, is not 
I, I really don't know. So I might be over assuming, but I bet you it was an all white crew as well. Like it's all white writers. And so I don't think you just fix this by having the actors be more diverse because the story would need to be more like, for example, like if the principal was, you know, black or not white or, you know, Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. that would be two different things. And like, or if like some of the students or, I mean, obviously if any of the students were gay or, Mm -hmm. you know, LGBTQ of any kind, right. And like, or, you know, disabled or like, there's just so much that happens in a real school that is completely not, not represented here. Or like if the janitor were, you know, not white, like even the janitor is white in this movie, which is, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I don't know, that sounded, that doesn't sound, but you know what I mean? No, but I I understand what you mean because every single role is completely, it's like just a white yeah world yeah and do you just, live in a community yeah. where there's only white people I'm confused right. like that's <laughs> right, right, kinda, right. you know yeah yeah and I feel like to fix it or to make like to fix the diversity issue would have just been more than casting mm-hmm. um and I think like I don't know what John Hughes was like as a collaborator if he ever had a chance to sort of diversify because it's his story and his storytelling and I think right that's why it's so white <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean yeah and you know to your point on that calling back to moxie that was the issue the entire writing team was white so when you mm. have an entire white writing room try to make a diverse film it like they they missed it they missed the mark mm. you know and you when you look at the writers on who were worked on that movie you're like i know you have black friends that you could have called <laughs> like, yeah you've worked with them in the past why didn't yeah. you work with them on this and it would be interesting if um and like you said, I don't know about John Hughes writing style and his collaboration and whatnot, but it would be interesting to bring, like it's his experience, but then also maybe somebody else comes in and shares their experience and they figure out how to marry the two to tell this story. Yeah. And I think like one of the things I really liked about um, another, uh, yet another thing that Molly Ringwald New Yorker piece is very good, but like there's a part toward like, you know, the bottom third where she talks about like somebody who's black and gay stopping her at a party like recently and telling her how much breakfast sub meant to them. And she was like, why? <laughs> like, there's no, there's no representation of you in any way. And he was like, it's the alienation of the yeah. characters that really spoke to me. Yeah. So I think like there is something in, and I, you know, when I watched this movie, like um, my neighbor was not white and, and like, she seemed to really like, she loved this movie and she really identified with it as well. And like, so I feel like there's something there about the universality of like Mm -hmm. feeling isolated and teen angst and that it just could obviously it wasn't but it could be more inclusive of lots of different types of teens but I like what you have to say because I about you know the relating to something and feeling bonded to something beyond Mm. just character appearance because yeah that's, you know, that was a lot of how I had to watch television. You know, I mm. didn't see my family represented in any way, shape or form on TV. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it's same with books, same with dolls, all of it. So, yeah. you know, you have to start to think about like, okay, so what is it about this movie that feels relatable to me? And you sort of train yourself to think that way and you don't realize that you're doing it and then it becomes second nature. And then, yeah, you know, in, in your example with Molly Ringwald encountering that person, it's a lot of what the black community had to do. Mm. And I can't speak for any other community because I'm not a part of those communities, but in, in reference to um, the black community, it's a lot of like, you know, I can relate to this character because alienation and, Mm. you know, maybe emotional abuse from my parent or whatever it is. Mm. And, and not necessarily the, the breakdown of the socioeconomic or being a sporto or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. I mean, yeah, my experience growing up was, I didn't question, I mean, it was so much more homogenous, like the media that I consumed in the eighties and nineties, like and especially in the eighties though, I feel like it was just like so many ta- like stories of white people and mm. being white, like I never really noticed. And then like, it, it took a while until I was older to kind of think, even though, yeah, like in real life, I had actually, I had mostly uh, BIPOC friends, <laughs> but because uh, of the part of LA I grew up in too, you know, was, you know, diverse, but, but yeah, of course, like the media I was consuming 
magazines, you know, magazines were so white, you know, all mm-hmm. the models were white and all the celebrities they were covering too. And like, I think, yeah, that is a real, when you talked about like what mark this movie left on me, it's like the gender politics for sure. And then also like, just like not questioning why this, you know, at the time, not questioning at all, like how every single person could be white in a movie yeah. never occurred to me. Yeah. As I, as I've embarked on this season of um, the show, cause we're, anal- we're looking at a lot of high school movies. I'm realizing how much of my identity has been shaped by, you know, these strong female characters that exist. And in some ways, Claire, you could, you know, you could argue whatever way you want about Claire, but at the end of the day, like she is who she is, but in other mm. respects too, like in other movies, there's all these really like like just the the commentary about gender about gender in general i'm realizing that really heavily influenced my position and and hmm. being very much um in the camp of like hey guys equity is a good thing yeah <laughs> also don't treat me like shit because i'm a woman um, yeah <laughs> and and you, you don't always think about that either and how that influences you and there's a lot of that in the 90s for sure where you yeah. have these really strong female characters but they're painted in this lens of like being an agitator or a man hater or what have you yeah. fast forward 20 30 years and you're like no she was awesome yeah and And just the way that they sort of handled it maybe wasn't the best, but they still gave us this like character that we could be like, she's about us. Let's be more like her. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Claire to me is like, I wonder how much teen girls have changed, like Mm -hmm. in the way they relate to boys, honestly, because she, she's so ashamed, you know, and she's so easily shamed uh, and teased. I mean, he's doing more than Bender's doing more than teasing, but yeah. like, um, but yeah, and she, and I just wonder like how much, I don't know. I was thinking about actually a movie that, or a book that came to mind. This is like one of the only YA books I've read in like the last 15 years, but I read the Divergent series. Have you mm. ever or watched those movies? Um, I really liked that, that female character, the main character is a, a girl. Um, but like one thing I really liked about it was, um, when she starts to, you know, fall in love with the main guy in the, in the book, she still has her own life. Like Mm -hmm. she really does like, not just like, oh, she kind of works her life in around this crush and this romance. Like she has her whole own thing. She Mm -hmm. has her own problems. She has her own thing she's trying to do. Um, she, there's one scene in the book where she, um, like jumps off a building because all the dauntless do that together. And I'm only bringing this up because even reading it as like a 39 year old, I read it like a couple of years ago, like her crush, whose name is four, like he's afraid of heights. That's like a big part of the plot. And so he doesn't go, he doesn't go to the top of the building and jump off. And she fucking goes anyway. Like, she's like, okay, well, I'll see you back at the like weird hole that we live in. And like, but I'm going to go jump off this building with my friends. And she doesn't, she doesn't not go. And he's not upset about it. And I feel like, I felt like, wow, now that is something Claire would never do if she was yeah. in a dystopian novel in the 80s. She would never like go yeah. do her live her own life, you know? And like, yeah. So I, I do think like there's progress with some female characters that's like really significant mm-hmm. um, and meaningful to me as someone who like didn't have any, I didn't have any role model like that for sure. Um, but in a lot of other ways, I think like a lot of girls, especially with like Instagram and well, they're not even on Instagram anymore, whatever apps they're on that yeah. I don't even know about because I'm too old um, you know, they're all, it's all about image and like how they look and what boys are thinking about how they look. I wonder. So, but now also you gave me the idea that we need to start writing, um, dystopian novels set in the eighties with strong female leads. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. As as we're, as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, dystopian novels. I'm thinking of all the dystopian novels I read in, you know, that were released between like what, 1960, whatever to like 1999. Mm. And I'm just like, some girls up in here being like badass and dystopia <laughs> yeah there's a lot of other problems with those books but I felt like I remember I just brought it up because like I remember as I was reading the scene having this realization like wow like that's great like she I don't think the author like that's it, that comes from the author you know I don't mm-hmm. think she like that was just natural to her to write mm-hmm. a female character who isn't like 
obsessed, like is obsessed with her crush, of course, because she's a teenager, but has like this whole other thing that she's doing. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't read the series, but we did, my son did, and we did go see the movies when they were released and I did enjoy the movies, but now I'm like, do I read the books? Because then I will become that, not that I'll become that person, but then I do the whole, cause I have this whole thing about book to screen adaptations and like how to do it without losing the integrity of the book, because that mm-hmm. happens so often. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I'm like, do I want to, do I want to go down that road? Divergent? Well, their romance really is a lot better in the book, but another reason I thought of this book when it has like a slight, um, you know, uh, connection to the breakfast club, like as slight as possible, but like the whole thing is there's these factions, right. And so there's dauntless and there's abnegation and amity or whatever, you know, there, everybody fits into one and the main character is divergent. She fits them all. Right. It's not that she doesn't fit into any, it's like, she's all of them. And that's how the breakfast club ends too, with like the essay that Brian writes, where he says, we're all a brain. We're all a basket Mm -hmm. case. We're all a jock. We're all like, we we're not just you know, fitting into our roles were all these things. And I think like, yeah, that's kind of interesting that like that theme, because like, yeah, when you're an adult too, like you kind of give up, you're just like, okay, this is my life. I mean, <laughs> not all adults <laughs> give up, not all the time, but you know, you're like, this is, this is, you know, you kind of like fit in a box and yeah. like, then you're kind of like working out, you know, do I fit here? And like, mm-hmm. you're, it's kind of lifelong. It's not just when you're a teen, you know? Absolutely. I'm definitely going through that now because I'm thinking, Mm. who am I without a child in the house? Like, what does that even mean? What does it even look like? And, and we don't really have a lot of that represented in pop culture and how to navigate Mm. that. And I realize how much of a crutch I use for television and movies to sort of help me figure out how I feel. Um, Not, not to tell me how I feel, but sort of to help me like realize like, oh yeah, I feel that that's, I understand that I relate to that scenario that's happening, that kind of stuff. And we don't have a ton of that. Actually the solo mom trope on in pop culture is really upsetting but we don't have this is not one dimensional yeah Yeah. (laughs) and empty nesters yeah it's very it's very flat Mm -hmm. like not a lot of nuance there Mm -hmm. what's interesting to me is this conversation between again you know um this battle between youth and experience because as i'm you know getting closer and closer to 40 i you know i'm not competing, but you know, the pool has more and more college graduates who are, you know, probably went to high school with my kid. And I'm feeling that pressure of like, am I still going to get an opportunity because now I'm competing with somebody who might be young and fresh and hot. But then when I see stuff, when I see, you know, younger people speak on the internet and talk about like, thank you for highlighting this young person. We don't get any credit. And I'm just like, well, who's getting all the credit then? Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm pushing 40 and I still feel like I have not had like the heyday that we're supposed to, like we're told we're supposed to have. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. To say I wasn't impacted by John Hughes's work would be a lie, but to echo Molly Ringwald's sentiment, I have complicated feelings towards this movie. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you share with our friends at home where they can catch you if they want to keep up with you online? Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am on Instagram, MaggieFrankHSU, and that's my website too, MaggieFrankHSU.com. Nice. And friends will link um, in the show notes so that way you can take a look at her website and see the um, freebie offer that she has and all of that fun stuff. If you love our show and want to support it, there's a few ways that you can do that. Become a supporter on Patreon for $10 a month to receive ad-free episodes with bonus content, or you can write a review or rate the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if neither of those are your style, you can find us on Instagram. Give us a follow and share your video clips with your friends. We are on IG as pop culture makes me jealous. Thanks for tuning in y'all. 